Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Manhattan. I'm drinking a fuzzy navel to go along with this case. Before we get started, this episode will feature talk of sexual assault and sexual violence. I also wanted to say that this isn't a super extensive look into John Wayne Gacy. Uh, It's kind of a brief overview followed by a discussion of some cultural implications and serial killer talk. So with that being said, let's get into the crimes of John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer clown. Gacy was born on March 17, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. He had two sisters and was close with both of his siblings as well as his mother. His father was an alcoholic that was abusive to their entire family. His sister Karen would later say that the siblings learned to toughen up against the beatings and that Gacy would not cry. John endured physical and emotional abuse from his father who often called him a sissy, queer, a disappointment, and stupid. He always felt like a disappointment to his dad and this caused him to crave acceptance even into his adulthood. John's mom defended her son when he was faced with this abuse, but that only made the abuse from his father worse. John enjoyed gardening and spending time with his mom, and as a young child, his mother and sister said that Gacy would wear his mother's underwear. In 1951, at the age of nine, John was diagnosed with a congenital heart condition that made it difficult to play with other children. And two years later, he began suffering from blackouts that were believed to have been caused by a blood clot after being hit in the head with a swing. His father accused him of faking the blackouts for sympathy, but his mom and sisters believed him, though his exact medical condition was never conclusively diagnosed. He spent lots of time in the hospital because of the blackouts, and it likely caused his grades in school to suffer. He never graduated high school, and as a young adult, he ran away to Las Vegas, Nevada after constant fights with his dad over a car that his dad had bought him. In Las Vegas, he found work as a mortuary assistant and slept in a room behind the embalming room. He later claimed that one night he climbed into a coffin and cuddled and fondled with the body of a deceased teenage boy. Gacy was shocked by his own actions. He then returned home to Illinois, and in 1963, he graduated from a business college. He soon married Marilyn Myers and moved to Waterloo, Iowa. Marilyn came from a wealthy family, and her father owned several Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants, and Gacy managed these KFCs with the hopes of one day taking over the franchises from her father. He actually even demanded people call him the Colonel, like Colonel Sanders. Gacy was becoming a prominent and respected citizen of Waterloo and served as vice president of the JCs, a civic leadership organization that revolved around community service. He was known to be charming and eager to volunteer for any project he could. Gacy and Marilyn had a son in 1966, and while Marilyn was in labor, Gacy was having one of his first gay sexual experiences with a JC member. Gacy and Marilyn soon welcomed their second child, a daughter, in 1967. Gacy would describe this period of his life as perfect, and it seemed he finally gained the respect of his father. But things were not as perfect as they appeared. Young male staff members at the KFCs alleged Gacy would hit on them and make them uncomfortable. Members of the JCs were also swingers and regularly abused drugs. Gacy and Marilyn were involved with swinging, and Gacy was known to supply teenage boys and young men with drugs, 
alcohol, sex workers, and illegal pornography as a means to recruit them into the Jaycees. Since he was always around young men and teenagers, questions of his sexuality began to arise from friends and those around him. In 1968, Gacy was accused of sexually assaulting the 15-year-old son of a prominent JC member. The boy claimed that after Gacy had given him drugs and alcohol, he forced him to perform a sex act and gave him $50 for his silence. The boy confided to his parents and Gacy was arrested for the sexual assault and attempted assault on another teenage boy. Gacy claimed he was innocent and that the accusation was politically motivated. He even demanded the police give him a polygraph test that, of course, he failed. He then paid a KFC employee to attack the 15-year-old boy and intimidate him into not testifying. Gacy was ultimately convicted of sodomy and sentenced to 10 years in state prison. His wife divorced him shortly after, and Gacy never saw their children again. Gacy was only 26 years old when he entered prison. He was a model prisoner and very friendly with inmates and guards. He became the head cook and advocated for wage increases for prisoners. He was even featured on a local television show doing a report on the prison. Gacy's dad passed away while he was in prison, which took a major toll on him. He felt as though his dad died ashamed of him. Of his 10-year sentence, he served only 18 months and was released on parole in June of 1970. He returned home to Chicago and was adjusting to life after prison relatively well. But in February of 1971, he was accused of sexually assaulting another teenage boy, but the boy failed to show up to court and the charges were dropped. The Iowa Board of Parole completely missed this, and one year after his release, his parole was finished. Gacy soon started a contracting business and generally decided to hire young teenage boys. He claimed this was to keep costs low. Gacy again became involved with the JCs and his local Democratic Party. He was again a well-respected member of his community, full of ambition. Just like in Waterloo, he threw crazy parties with drugs, alcohol, and porn to recruit new members to both organizations. He also started volunteering in hospitals and doing magic tricks for sick kids as Pogo the Clown. The first known murder of Gacy's was 16-year-old Tim McCoy in 1972. McCoy had been traveling for the holidays, and Gacy met him at a Greyhound bus station. They had sex at Gacy's house, and Gacy claims the next morning he awoke to see McCoy holding a kitchen knife in the doorway. Thinking he was under attack, Gacy stabbed McCoy with the knife, killing him. In reality, McCoy was just cooking them breakfast. Gacy hid McCoy's body in the crawl space of his home. This murder was impulsive, but seemed to have lit a spark within Gacy, who would later claim that he had an orgasm while killing the boy. Not long after, he sexually assaulted another teenage boy who was able to escape. The boy went to the police, but they let Gacy off with a warning. I think they claimed that they were just really busy at the time. In 1975, Gacy murdered John Butkovich, an 18-year-old employee of his. Butkovich was going to Gacy's house to pick up his paycheck and seemingly vanished. Butkovich's family knew Gacy had to be involved because of this, but the police never followed up and thought Butkovich was a runaway. In March 1976, Carol and Gacy got divorced. With his wife and stepchildren out of his home, Gacy was free to do as he pleased. Between 1976 and 1978, he raped and killed 23 teenage boys and young adult men. Several of these boys were Gacy's employees. 
Their families even spoke to Gacy after their sons disappeared and he attempted to get them off his tracks. I think he typically said the boys were runaways. How many times have we heard that before? Gacy would regularly abduct boys off the street at gunpoint, but some were lured to his home. Strangulation with a rope tourniquet, which he called the rope trick, was his typical method of murder, but several of his victims died of asphyxiation as well, and those victims' bodies were found with clothing and fabric in their throats. He'd then bury his victims' bodies in the crawl space of his house. If anyone asked about the smell, he'd say there was a sewage problem. He even had employees dig trenches in the crawl space and spread powdered lime to help with the smell. Once he ran out of space, he dumped bodies along the Des Plaines River. Survivors of Gacy said he'd handcuff them as part of a trick. Some escaped, some were let go by Gacy, and at least one victim was dumped after being attacked but managed to get help, and it's thought that this victim in particular, Gacy likely believed he was dead and he wasn't, thankfully. In 1978, Gacy abducted and murdered 15-year-old Robert Peace after speaking to him at a pharmacy. Peace told his mom he was going to speak to a man about a job, and Peace's boss informed his mom that the man in question was John Wayne Gacy. The police took this case seriously as they didn't think Robert would have been a runaway, and when they looked into Gacy, they found his past sodomy conviction and that he had been questioned in the disappearance of John Butkovich. They began surveilling Gacy 24-7, and like he did with many other people, Gacy charmed the officers surveilling him. He even invited them in for meals and drinks and generally appeared cocky, but in reality, he was very paranoid. Officers actually did go in when they were invited in by him, and looking around, they found a 1975 class ring, clothing that was too small for him, and a foul smell coming from beneath the house. Later that month, Gacy confessed his crimes to his lawyers, but he claimed that the boys were just prostitutes, liars, and hustlers. He told them that he gave the boys the rope trick and buried them in his crawl space and along the Displains River. Gacy was soon arrested for marijuana possession and held by police while another search of his house took place. He either gave police or his lawyers a drawing of the basement with the bodies stacked on one another. The police found Gacy's basement flooded, which Gacy had done himself by unplugging the sump pump and had to wait for the water to drain before a search of the space could begin. In total, they found 29 bodies in Gacy's home, and they had to rely on dental records and x-rays to identify the boys. Several more bodies were found on the banks of the Des Plaines River, including that of Robert Peast. During his 1980 trial, Gacy was found to be mentally fit to stand trial. Despite this, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Arguments from the prosecution and defense focused on Gacy's mental state during the time of the murders. The defense claimed that he was apparently schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality disorder and that his clown persona was one of these personalities. They also argued that he suffered from long-lasting trauma due to his abusive childhood. But the prosecution claimed he was a ruthless killer and showed clear premeditation in his murders. On March 12th, he was found guilty of 33 counts of murder, sexual assault, and indecent liberties with a child. He was sentenced to 12 death sentences. While on death row, Gacy gave many interviews and often gave stories that differed from one another. He proclaimed he was innocent and essentially blamed the victims for being killed because of their risky behaviors. He also dabbled in painting while awaiting his execution, 
and some are still available to buy. He was put to death by lethal injection on May 10th, 1994, with a crowd of people outside eagerly awaiting his death. His last meal was made up of a bucket of KFC chicken, fried shrimp, strawberries, french fries, and a Diet Coke. His last words were, kiss my ass. Since then, his brain has been analyzed, but showed nothing of note. His home was destroyed, and a new home was built upon the lot. It was last up for sale in 2019. We wanted to take a moment to honor the 27 identified and 6 unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy. Timothy McCoy, 16. John Buckovich, 18. Daryl Sampson, 19. Samuel Stapleton, 14. Randall Raffet, 15. Michael Bonin, 17. William Billy Carroll, 16. Jimmy Hankinson, 16. Rick Johnston, 17. William George Bundy, 19. Michael Marino, 14. Kenneth Parker, 16. Gregory Gottsick, 17. John Sick, 19. John Prestige, 20. Matthew Bowman, 18. Robert Gilroy, 18. John Mallory, 19. Russell Nelson, 21 or 22. Robert Winch, 18. Tommy Bowling, 20. David Talsma, 20. William Kindred, 19. Timothy O'Rourke, 20. Frank Landingen, 19. James Mazzara, 20. Robert Peast, 15. And as we said, there are six unidentified victims. Um, the victims are numbered, I believe, when they were found in his house. So we have victim 28 between the ages of 14 and 18. Victim 5, 22 to 31. Victim 26, 22 to 30. Victim 13, 17 to 21. Victim 21, 21 to 27, and victim 10, 17 to 21. There aren't too many theories with the John Wayne Gacy case, but one that we found during our research was the accomplice theory. And that's the idea that John Wayne Gacy did not act alone in his crimes. And people think this mainly because of three men that were found in Gacy's home in the crawl space who, when they were reported missing by their families, Gacy was either out of town or shown to be at work. And that is Russell Nelson, Robert Gilroy, and John Mallory. Russell Nelson's sister actually believes that someone else was involved. She said, I don't think they should let this lie. This caused a lot of hurt. And if there is an accomplice, he should be brought to justice. Yeah, and there actually could be multiple. Um accomplices in this case which is so weird to think because a lot of serial killers typically work alone they did an interview with walter jacobson and he had said that some employees from gacy's construction company often stayed at his home and remember we spoke about when the police were there just for a night they had noticed the really strong smells coming from Gacy's home. So it stands to reason that if someone was actually sleeping over there for a long time, they would also smell it. 
and maybe they weren't bothered by it because they had something to do with the reason why it smelled that way. Yeah, I've also heard too, or I've seen that to the average person, they might not know what the smell of decomposition is, but someone like a police officer would just because they're more likely to run into it. Gacy also had a few different roommates and people believe that those roommates could have been involved with his crimes as well. I think another reason why people believe this is 33 people were killed in such a short amount of time. You kind of wonder, could one person be responsible for everything? I mean, even if it was just those three that perhaps he didn't kill, 27 is still a lot for someone to kill in such a short amount of time, less than five years. Right. And one of the people that Gacy raped and tortured at his house actually said that he believed that someone else was in the house while he was being tortured there. Yeah, like we're saying with someone living there, people, friends coming over, they had to have known something was up with him. I don't know. Neighbors noticed that he was like leaving his house at odd times, that like the lights were always on. And I think once he really started to kill, his personality really shifted too and neighbors picked up on that. Right, because it's one thing to go from this free-loving person who admittedly was doing stuff really wrong, like you shouldn't be drugging people, you know, whatnot. But he went from that, he went from having consensual encounters with men to raping and killing them. That's definitely going to have, you know, some sort of effect on how you view yourself and how you view the people around you. Yeah, and I think I do believe that Tim McCoy's murder was just kind of impulsive. But like we said, it really seems like Gacy found himself I guess you could say when he murdered him I feel so bad for that boy just thinking that he was trying to do something nice I mean if we can believe Gacy's story he was just trying to do something nice for him and that's what he got right but if you look at Gacy's past it sort of makes sense because his really personal interactions with other men were either hypersexual or violent like the relationship that he had with his father So I'm not surprised that once they got past the sexual encounter, seeing McCoy in another way would have been violent. And it's sad, but it seemed to be Gacy's default in a lot of ways. You're right. And there is definitely an overlying notion of repressed sexuality too with John Gacy even if he was openly bisexual with his wife everything his father said to him and what cultural standards were at the time too that brings us into the question of nature versus nurture and this is brought up with many serial killers is it just in their nature were they born evil or is it because of how they were raised and Del, you have a bachelor's in psychology. Would you like to explain um, a little bit more about the two? Absolutely. So the argument really centers around whether people's behaviors are predetermined by genetics or are more heavily influenced by the environment in which the person grows up. So people who argue that nature is the primary driver of behaviors would claim that a person is born bad and that a loving home cannot correct any personality disorders or other behavioral issues. On the other side, someone who argues about the nurture um, approach would say that despite any person's genetic dispositions, all people are able to be productive members of society if given the right upbringing. This concept fuses together within epigenetics, 
which is focused on how environmental factors can influence the expression of genes. So for example, if you have a gene that predisposes you to cancer, it may be activated upon chronic smoking. So looking at both sides of this, um, there's definitely things that we can see in everyday life that may fit into one or both of these categories. On the nurture side of things, you can look at biases and social constructs like gender and gender roles. So as we know, gender is something that's very fluid. And while we typically delineate uh, male and female as the two sides of the spectrum, you definitely have people that encompass the whole spectrum and some people that don't encompass it at all. So Jenny, what do you think about the nature versus nurture debate? I think it's a mix of both nature and nurture. I feel like that was probably the case for John Wayne Gacy, although I do wonder if he had grown up in a more loving household, if he had grown up without fearing like retribution for his sexuality, if he would have ended up different. And that's nothing like we can prove, but definitely some food for thought. And it honestly really makes me wonder too, how many serial killers or just people that have done like terrible things to other people, if they hadn't been victimized themselves, how they would have ended up. A lot of different serial killers do have childhood trauma. Ed Gein's mother was very overbearing and kind of cut him and his brother off from the rest of the world. The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, had an abusive father, and Eileen Warno suffered sexual abuse in her childhood. All three people we would call evil. I know I'm like very scared of Richard Ramirez in all honesty. Um, I guess it all just goes into what we kind of talked about with Jeffrey Dahmer and how we feel like we need to blame something for a serial killer. And I do think a lot of people don't really realize what childhood trauma can do. You hear so many times how people say like, well, I was abused as a child and I didn't kill anyone. And I don't really think that's the point. Because again, it is what's in your nature mixed with how you are raised and what I guess you can kind of overcome from your trauma, what you can learn from it and how you handle other things in life. To bring us back around to the nurture versus nature debate, keep in mind that John Wayne Gacy and his sister grew up in the same household, yet their lives really diverged into different paths where Gacy became a notorious serial killer and his sister currently bears the weight of that. There was a documentary on Lifetime called Monster and My Family, and she really talked about the negative mental effects that being Gacy's sister had on her and the, the remorse she has for what her brother did to his victims. She really seems like such a, a wonderful person and she really seems to understand the crimes her brother committed and has guilt for them and a lot of love and sympathy for the victim's family. She's not someone that tries to deny what he did. I guess she does embrace really what he did and tries to right some of his wrongs. I wanted to take a minute just to talk a little bit about the laziness and the poor police work that the police in this area did in regards to these missing boys whose families were begging for answers. John Butkovich's family called the police 100 times, but they refused to investigate really and said, again, he was just a runaway. And we said this in how many cases, Del? It never stops being infuriating. 
And the fact that they said they were too busy to investigate a sexual assault. Yes, and that really goes to show how sex crimes are not taken seriously enough. First, we knew that John Gacy was hanging around young boys. And we knew that people thought that was weird. But did anyone step in to say to him, like, hey, what are you doing? Or did anyone really warn the boys that, like, this behavior, an older man taking such notice in you isn't normal? I mean, I know that this isn't stuff we talked about, really, but I feel like with some people, we there's kind of a code. Like, I know we've talked about women kind of having, like, an unspoken code of, like, okay, we're going to watch out for each other. Was no one really doing this for these young boys? It didn't seem like it. No, and... I know that, you know, people have spoken about how he was a well-respected member of the community, but haven't we seen enough cases of the supposed well-respected member of the community turning out to be a monster, not to turn a blind eye to boys going to the police and saying, he hurt me, he touched me, he was inappropriate. Why are we not listening to them? Why are we not considering that something is wrong if multiple boys are coming to us and telling us that they've been victimized by this one person? Yeah, before um, he really went on his killing spree, he had sexually assaulted a boy, like we said, and the boy went to the police and said, John Wayne Gacy did this to me. And the police just let him go. That's what you were saying, Del, and that's just so ridiculous. And again, it does make you wonder... Are we taking this seriously? Are we listening to these young men? And it seems like a lot of cases that we're not really. And I don't know if that's maybe just because of the gender roles and norms that we do put on young men that they can kind of take care of themselves. They're tough enough. And when men are sexually assaulted, we know that they're questioned. Like, why didn't you fight it off? You're supposed to be a big, strong man. You couldn't handle yourself. Or men can't be raped because they always want sex. Right. Or you turn it around on the person and make them question their sexuality. Well, you were raped by a man and that means that you're gay. When in actuality, no, it meant that they were raped. Exactly. And all of this was happening in the 60s and 70s. There's already the shame of being sexually assaulted. And now you have to deal with the shame of people questioning your sexuality and then maybe you in turn questioning your own sexuality too. It's so much trauma for these young boys and young men to handle. Rape laws in a lot of the United States were kind of written in a way that makes rape virtually impossible to prosecute for a long time in the 60s until like 2012. There needed to be corroboration from someone that was accusing someone of rape and in this article, I found they talk about women. We do know that women are often more victimized with sexual violence than men are. But regardless, why does someone need an external force corroborating their story? Like, yeah, I, I was an eyewitness to this rape. When does that happen? I feel like it kind of also helps to perpetuate the idea of stranger danger, which we know doesn't really happen. I, I mean, I know that John Wayne Gacy did just abduct people that were unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we also know that he was torturing and murdering young men and boys that he worked with. Right. And we don't do this for any other crime where you need some outside person to say, like, I saw that crime. If you say that someone broke into your house and stole, someone broke into your house and stole. You don't need someone to say, oh, yeah, I totally saw that crime in order for the police to investigate it. Yeah, I, I don't understand by 
I mean, it's the 21st century. Why haven't we changed our mindset around this? I've, we've done like such amazing work recently, just even talking about sexual assault and sexual violence and the effects it has on people and how truly everyone knows someone that has experienced sexual trauma in their life. And why aren't we actively doing something about it? I also wanted to mention too, going back um, to John Butkovich and his family, they knew that he was on his way to see John Wayne Gacy to get his paychecks. The police couldn't just look up and find that he had been in jail for sodomy and sexually assaulting people. What kind of work is that? What were they so busy with? I mean, I know this is like a suburb of Chicago, but... I definitely agree with you. And it really reminds me of the situation with Jeffrey Dahmer and Conorak. Because as you guys recall from that case, Dahmer had been convicted before of sexually assaulting a young boy. And when the police officer showed up to the scene, they had Dahmer's name, but they never ran a check before they allowed the boy to go back with Dahmer. And it seems to be the same case where you guys have a system where you're able to look into previous cases, but for some reason you're not using it. Yeah, it makes no sense. And again, we see them taking the word of someone that looks nice and normal, someone that's handling himself well, and then not believing the people of color trying to say, hey, something is wrong in this situation. I did want to say too, we understand that everything with John Wayne Gacy happened decades ago and that culture has changed, resources has changed, but I feel like there's really no excuse for letting him get away with so much for so long. Please visit the Cook County Sheriff's Department's website if you believe your loved one could be one of the six unidentified victims. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the crimes of John Wayne Gacy. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dale signing off. Stay safe.